Bowie's embarking in the 80s. He's got to do something that will broaden his audience. How do you remain relevant? I know when to go out. Yeah, let's let's check it out. Let's see what it sounds like. Good Bowie impression. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's totally stoked to welcome artist Rowan Harrison to join me as we put on our red shoes and dance the blues to David Bowie's 1983 post-disco new wave funk pop masterpiece, Let's Dance. But before we get into the modern love of it all, I'd like to tell you a little about the gifted and inspiring Rowan Harrison. Rowan is an award-winning visual artist, arts instructor, and presenter of cultural-affiliated arts programs, working in the mediums of clay, illustrations, and mixed media. He has been combining the ideals of passion, apprenticeship, and patience, presenting his artwork rooted in his Native American cultural heritage to communities and cities locally and abroad. Rowan is an enthusiast and connoisseur of all things visual arts, music, film, and popular culture. Welcome to the podcast, Rowan. Well, thank you very much, Lori. It's it's quite the honor and quite the privilege of being on the Untitled Gen X <laughs> podcast. I appreciate it. Um, and thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to our time here. Man, we're going to have a good time. And getting you on the pod is quite a get because, okay, for those of you who don't know, I worked with Rowan uh, in a corporate job for a lot of years, for about 14 years. And um, he was known, I used to call him Agent 300 back in the day. His extension was 300. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The one and only Agent 300. The best <laughs> of the West, a payroll clerk in the West. The best. <laughs> and Rowan is just the coolest guy. I mean, he is so, so incredibly talented. And there was a time at our work where we had a company newsletter, Rowan, do you remember? And you used to do like the arts section of it, and I would edit your work. And so we've been working in this weird creative way together long before I I left my corporate job to become an editor and work as a writer. And it's crazy. We've known each other a super long time. That is exactly right. And thanks for bringing that up. Because yeah, we did over at the corporation, we did have this monthly newsletter that went out to all the employees. And there was a section called the movie beat section. And I would write up movie reviews. And yeah, I would submit it to you would do all the edit, right? You would make my rambling, babbling um, write ups into more something coherent, something conclusive and direct. Yeah, that's right. We did work that way together. Of course, you're an incredible artist, but you're a true lover of all the arts. You love music and film. You go to a lot of live shows, film festivals. You're like in it. Yeah, I'm really passionate about art, music, film, anything that's art related, culture. Mm -hmm. And I find that everything is connected in one way or another. You go to a film, music is there. Yes. You listen to music, there are, there's images in the film. There's, there's a narrative, there's writing involved. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find that everything is so connected. And, and it's all about, you know, creative minds, creative thinkers, and expressing themselves and putting themselves out into the world. And You know, and there's just this huge community of artists, you know, out there who are doing their work and from one generation to the next. And I just get absorbed in it. And it really has a way of keeping me inspired, having me think about my own creative work and my own creative developments and what I want to bring forth in the imagery and in the work that I do. So yeah, that's a big part of my life. 
you know, I consider myself, you know, a pretty intense progressive music collector. You know, I'm one of those individuals who likes buying the records. You know, I kind of consider myself one of those kind of people who are completists. So if I like a certain artist, I won't just buy one record, but I will try to collect their entire body of work. And I'm also one of those people, you know, to learn more about the artist, the music, to get more deeper fulfillment of the sounds, the visuals. Yeah, for me, it's imperative to take the time, plunk down the cash, and go out and see the shows, go and support the bands. Right. That for me is a fulfillment in my life. You can never get enough of it and it never gets old. You're a true investor in it. And I think that's what's so inspiring about you. And I knew that from the time we first met and began talking about the arts. And when I asked you, let's choose an album to cover. And you suggested David Bowie, Let's Dance. I have to know, Rowan, what's your history with this album? David Bowie's Let's Dance, it came out in April 14th, 1983, 39 years ago, right? Mm. So, you know, in 1983, we're entering into a new decade. We just got past the 70s. There was such this wide diversity of music that was coming into popular culture, different sounds, styles. Some of it was dance oriented, some of it was rock oriented. And in 83, my musical taste was pretty much all over the map. I was about 14. So one day I could be listening to Prince. Next day I could be listening to Motley Crue. Next day I could be listening to Culture Club, Flock of Seagulls, U2, Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. You know, all that was kind of in, in the listening mix. And of course, David Bowie was in there and specifically the songs from Let's Dance, but more like Modern Love, Mm -hmm. China Girl, and of course the title track, which, you know, at the time MTV was in its second year, right? Mm -hmm. And those songs were just routinely played day and night on MTV. Crazy. And it's wild to consider this album was David Bowie's 15th studio Mm -hmm. album. 15th. My Lord. Yeah. If we look at David Bowie, he's beginning the 80s and he just ended a decade of the 70s. And he left behind this eclectic, wonderful body of work. If you look at the records like Ziggy Stardust, Diamond Dogs, Mm -hmm. Station to Station, great record, Young Americans, Aladdin Sane. He ended the 70s transitioning to Berlin and he started working with Brian Eno, who's like this ambient electronic guru. Right. And then he was in collaboration there with his buddy and Road Dog and longtime friend Iggy Pop. Yep. And after that, Lodger came around and then he ended the 70s with Scary Monsters. Yes. So so now Bowie's embarking on a new decade, right? With a new label, EMI America. Right? Yeah. And he wanted to collaborate with Niles Rogers of the disco band Chic. Mm -hmm. And he wanted him to help him co-produce this album. Right. He was looking for a different sound. Like he wanted some hits. He wanted some like dance hits. Yeah. So I, I don't know what was going on in the world and David Bowie's mindset. What was he thinking about during this point in time in his career? He just got divorced. And he, I guess, acquired full custody of his teenage son. Mm-hmm. So he's a single dad. He has a son. He he just became sober, right, out of the 70s, out of the decadent 70s. Mm. And now he's he's had this string of wonderful work. And he's acquired this kind of not, a, not quite of a big audience, I don't think it was. But it was kind of a more tight-knit audience. Dedicated as hell, yes. So now Bowie's embarking in the 80s and now he's got to appeal. He's 
got to do something that will broaden his audience. How do you remain relevant? Well, yes, because the sound was changing. Most definitely. People wanted to feel good. People wanted dance music. And you're coming off of this Mm -hmm. disco era into this sort of synth heavy sound. And so how do you incorporate that and still make it Bowie, but a new version of Bowie? He told Rogers, look, I just want to make a good groove record. And Rogers Mm -hmm. said, he invited me to Switzerland. And when I got there, he told me he wanted me to do what I did best. He said, Niall, I really want you to make hits. And I was sort of taken back because I'd always assumed that David Bowie did art first. And then if it happened to become a hit, so be it. But not in this case. He wanted to produce an album with dance hits. That was the goal. Right. He did it. Yeah. When you listen to Let's Dance, it is definitely a very sunny, it's a very warm record. It's not this otherworldly, you have to be so evolved to understand it, or it's none of that. Right. And I think some of the bands that were starting to percolate in the early 80s and the mid 80s, you know, some of that music was dark, you know, some of it was angry. Some of it was very introspective. Some of it was very serious, right? And Bowie does have those elements in his work. But here with Let's Dance, I kind of see it as a very sunny springtime record. Like, let's just have a good time. Yeah, let's just have a good time. It just has positive vibe throughout the whole record, and which is, which is its strong point, you know? Oh, absolutely. And of course, he brought in all brand new musicians Mm -hmm. to do this album, including a then unknown Stevie Ray Vaughan, who did all the guitar work on the Mm -hmm. album. And some of it is very, very, like you listen to it and you're like, that's so Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. So the whole album was recorded at the power station in New York City over the span of 17 days. That was it. 17 days they put out this Really. Wow. You know, sometimes it takes bands months, you know, years to record a record. They crank that out fast and it's still so good. It still holds up so well. You know, these guys are professionals, so (laughs) they know what they're doing. (laughs) So let's talk about the track list. What is your favorite song on the album? It's a cross between... On side A, you have China Girl. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love how we're talking about the A and B of it all. Right. <laughs> and then if you flip the record over, there's Cat People putting out fire. Oh, you like Cat People. Yes, fantastic track. And it was that track that kind of brought me back to this record. I think I did have the record in 83, but as the, as the decade progressed, you know, we went into 84 and, you know, there used to be a DJ radio host by the name of Richard Blade. On K-Rock. 106.7. World famous. Yes. And I remember (laughs) he used to have an after school video show called Video One. Okay. And I, I remember one day I was watching it and this band came on called R.E.M. They performed South Central Rain. And I, I was just so fascinated by that. You know, the whole presentation that the band, you know, showed, you know, they were very down to earth. It was very fundamental. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't over the top like other 80s groups were. But I kind of got the feel that these are guys who want to be considered serious musicians Mm -hmm. and serious artists in in what they're doing. So from that point on, it kind of literally changed the direction into the type of music I would listen to. So from that point on, as the 80s progressed, I would get into more darker bands, more bands like The Cult, The Mission UK, Gene Loves Jezebel, Jesus and Mary Chain. Chain. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the Cure, the Smiths, the church. And through that process, 
David Bowie was kind of left on the wayside and David Bowie wasn't part of the equation. You know, after Let's Dance, David Bowie came out with his follow-up, which was Tonight. Yep. You know, it had some it had some pretty decent songs in there, you know, Blue Jeans. But, you know, it was an okay record, but it wasn't enough to make me a constant listener of David Bowie. Okay. But it wasn't until maybe 2009 when I started getting back into Bowie. Long story short, when I started getting into my mid-30s, I think that was a period in my life where I really started buying a lot of records. You know, I would find myself every other weekend going to these small little independent record stores, you know, the swap meet, um, and every once in a while, I would find a David Bowie record. Oh, look, here's Station to Station. You know, let's pick it up. Oh, look, here's Pinups. You know, and over a period of time, I started having this kind of decent collection of David Bowie records. You know, I'd come home, put them on the turntable, play them. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Pretty interesting. You know, take it off the record, put it on the shelf, and let it sit there. But it wasn't until Filmmaker... Quentin Tarantino came out with his film Inglorious Bastards. Right. David Bowie's Cat People putting out fire is being played in the background. Mm. And I remember when I first saw that, you know, I'm sitting there in the movie theater. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, David Bowie. Like you had forgotten. Mm-hmm. Then I thought that was such a great piece of music. You know, I know where that came from. It came from the Let's Dance record. Came home, took this record off the shelf, put it on the turntable, and then started listening to it again. And over time, it got more repeat listens. And it's kind of interesting because there are people on YouTube who do these videos where they rank and rate David Bowie records. Uh Uh-huh. And a lot of times, Let's Dance is not really in the top 10 of those surveys. And I'm like thinking, That's wow. so interesting. I mean, it is such a departure from a lot of his work. And that's probably mm-hmm. why. Right. And I kind of chalk that up to maybe because a lot of people think that, you know, it was such a big commercial record. And maybe David Bowie sold out and maybe instead of making music for himself, like he normally does, that he kind of made music for what an audience would appreciate. So maybe that's the kind of thinking. But I also notice sometimes a conversation comes with when it comes to Let's Dance is people really enjoy the main tracks, China Girl, Modern Love. Let's dance. And it kind of stops there. But there's so much else going on in that record, especially when you flip it over. Got wonderful tracks like Ricochet. And there's, of course, Cat People. You know, there's just a lot of wonderful things happening on side two that makes it such an interesting piece of work. What's so interesting is The album actually has three covers on it. Cat People is a cover of a song Mm -hmm. that he had originally done in 1982 for the film Cat People. And apparently he didn't actually really like the original version of the song, which was why he wanted to remake it. And the sound was more aggressive than the original version. And it was ultimately considered to be one of Bowie's best recordings of 1983. Yeah. And Criminal World, also on side B, that's a cover of Metro's Criminal World, which is a 1977 song that was banned by the BBC for bisexual undertones. And in terms of Ricochet, Ricochet was giving me like serious Major Tom vibes. Bowie said, I thought it was a great song and the beat wasn't quite right. It didn't roll the way it should have. The syncopation was wrong. It had an ungainly gait. It should have flowed. (laughs) Niall did his own thing to it, but it wasn't quite what I had in mind when I wrote the thing. I liked it. It's a wonderful track. You know, there's a part of it where where there's another Stevie Ray Vaughan solo in there. Mm -hmm. So Ricochet is good. 
And, you know, the last song on side two is Shake It. Which sounds so much like Let's Dance. Yeah, it kind of has that same groovy dance vibe to it. It does. The wonderful thing I noticed about Let's Dance when I started re-listening to it, and I hear it throughout the record, is the drums, um, the mixing of the drums. Mm. It seems to be very loud. It's very big. Yes. Um, there's full volume with the drums. You know, I don't know whether Niall said, hey, Bowie, do you think we should bring up the drums here in the mix? Maybe Bowie's like, yeah, let's let's check it out. Let's see what it sounds like, you know? <laughs> Good Bowie impression. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the playback, maybe Bowie goes, you know, that's very interesting. Let's keep that going. But yeah, the drums are loud. They're thunderous throughout throughout the whole you know record, and that's why I like it. Drummer Omar Hakim, you know, jazz drummer, kind of does his jazz fusion type drumming style. Very good, solid throughout the whole record. Yeah, let's talk singles. Let's start with Modern Love. Modern Love is probably my favorite track on the album, and it was one of Roger's favorites. Also, he called it an old barrel house rocker with a real pounding little Richard type sound piano. While on top of it, it was very sophisticated jazz horn sound. And I remember years ago, hundred years ago, I saw David Bowie on like Regis and whoever. And he was talking about how little Richard was such a huge influence in his life. And mm-hmm. little Richard was one of his earliest rock heroes. A little Richard. Elvis Presley. Yeah. And you can really hear it in this song. You know, there was just real like joy to this song. It had a real energetic feel. Yeah. So, you know, Modern Love is the first track on the record. Take the record out of the sleeve. You put it on the turntable. You drop the needle. And the first thing you hear is this little, it almost sounds like a staccato little guitar riff. And I'm assuming that's Niall Rogers because Niall Rogers also played guitar on on some of the tracks along with Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? And then it comes in the drums, the big Mm -hmm. drums. And then you get into the keyboard melody, right? And then the whole rhythm, the whole thing starts taking shape. I know when to go out. Right. Instantly, you know, you kind of want to move your body. You know, you want to shake the hips, you know. How do you not move when you hear this song? Yeah, right. It's a great opening track. Oh, it is. And in many ways, the vibes I get from that track, the energy I get from the track, you know, it's so kind of on the same plane as what was happening at that time during the 80s with music. There was this new... complexity to pop music you know it was sunny it was warm it was full of color flash and I think modern love goes is very in line with that I think in the 80s there was just a real decadence to music yeah modern love fantastic opening track Rolling Stone listed it as one of Bowie's 30 essential songs saying, quote, the song reveals Bowie at his catchiest and most nihilistic. And I mm-hmm. went back and watched the video. Did you have a chance to see it? Yeah. It's been viewed over 20 million times. And basically it's just Bowie and the band performing the song from the Serious Moonlight tour that followed the release of the album. And we just see him in sort of like a lemon yellow suit with his cool undone bow tie. And And the band is just having a really good time. They're just dancing and performing the song. Very simple video. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's video concert performance. And with that video, you get to see Bowie's entire backing band. And it's a big ensemble. And it would have to be to produce that much sound. There's a lot of complexity to it. And also, you mentioned the suit. The suit, the signature suit. He was looking sharp, debonair. You know, he had the little blonde. He had the, the blonde bleach blonde hairdo. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he just looked really cool in the video. Yeah. You know, confident. A man who definitely knows what he is doing and feels good about it. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, what were your thoughts on China Girl? 
Oh, China Girl. Interesting video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, during the, in the 80s, videos was such an important medium. And David Bowie is kind of one of these artists who gravitates and gets excited about new technology. Mm. And, you know, the video format, I'm sure David Bowie was very enthralled with it. Um, the video China Girl. Yeah, great song. It has this kind of narrative to it, you know, this interracial relationship yeah. between Bowie's character. And there's also, you know, the China Girl in the video. I don't know how to say it. She's very erotic. It's very interesting because I did sense a real sort of Asian fetish. I can't say the word. I yes. struggle with it. Fetishization. It was designed to be that way. So this video was directed by David Mallet. David Mallet, he's done stuff for like In Excess, Joan Jett, ACDC, Def Leppard, The Stones, Queen. Like he's directed all the videos. And this video was shot in the Chinatown district of Sydney. And the woman that you're talking about, the love interest in the video, her name is Geeling Chin, and she was a 23-year-old waitress waiting tables at a Sydney cafe when she was discovered and offered the role in the video. And it was super interesting because she was a Bowie fan. When she was a teenager, she had posters of Bowie in her room. Isn't that wild? Crazy. I know. Following the video shoot, they actually ended up in a brief romance, and she said the experience was life-changing. She called it a surreal dream. And she told the Associated Press, there was something quite otherworldly about him. He was beautiful, just beautiful. The video tells the story of an interracial romance between Bowie and this Chinese woman. And he's depicted as like ultra masculine, whereas she's sort of a parody of an Asian female stereotype. Yeah, I kind of see it as... um Kind of, she's kind of this exotic uh -huh. muse for Bowie in the video. Mm -hmm. I like the way the, the video starts. There's this little Chinese design motif that borders the screen. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of caught my eye because, you know, I do a lot of design work. But, you know, Bowie comes on camera. You know, he's very cool. He starts singing. Super dynamic. The vocal delivery approach and China Girl is absolutely exquisite. Bowie starts off very low key, kind mm -hmm. of in this very baritone kind of vocal delivery approach. And then halfway through the song, he gets into the lyrics where I stumble into town, it's like a sacred cow. It's right here at this point where David Bowie starts raising his vocal delivery to another higher octave the song just takes off there it just goes into another stratosphere and it just makes the song so much more vibrant and it's just that little subtle thing where he just raises his voice and then it comes back down to where he started from right. again to me this is the hallmark of an artist who knows what he's doing. It's absolutely beautiful. I think it is too. I love this song. I don't love the video. The video felt mm -hmm. super racist to me and I'm trying to judge it in yeah. the time that it was created. Like we have to, when we go back and look at these things, but I found an article in the Washington post. The title of it was how David Bowie's China Girl used racism to fight racism. This was written by Ruth Tam. This is what she said. Was David Bowie's 1983 hit China Girl racist? Yes, but racist on purpose. If you're wondering why that makes a difference, consider Bowie's comments in Rolling Stone that same year. He said, let's try to use the video format as a platform for some kind of social observation and not just waste it on trotting out and trying to enhance the public image of the singer involved. I mean, these are little movies and some movies can have a point. So why not try to make some point? Now she goes on to say Bowie's new fans, those who flocked to him after the success of 1983's Let's Dance, may have thought they were getting a salacious pop single served up with the taste of Asia. 
but older fans from the 70s knew better. Bowie was donning the role of a racist womanizer, not only to decry racist womanizing, but to condemn the West's demeaning view of the East as a whole. China Girl was a parody of racism and stereotyping. The message that they have is very simple. It's wrong to be racist. So he was putting this out there. It actually was racist to prove a point. I think the point was lost on a lot of people, including myself. When I first saw this video, I was like, what? What? He is not doing that to his eyes in this video. Like he is not depicting her in this way, but yet he was to prove a point. Right. And that would go in line with, I believe he did an interview on MTV at that time. Mm -hmm. And he asked the interviewer, hey, how come you're not putting more Black artists in the rotation? He called them out very publicly. Yes. And the host kind of didn't know what to say. Uh But yeah, David Bowie was definitely thinking about that, Mm -hmm. using the new technology, the video format as a way of addressing social issues like that. Mm -hmm. And we go on to see that in the Let's Dance video. Did you know that this song, China Girl, was originally written by Bowie and Iggy Pop in 1976, and it appeared on Iggy Pop's 1977 debut solo album, The Idiot, which Bowie produced. So the song was about Iggy Pop's infatuation with the Vietnamese woman, Clen Nguyen. I haven't heard the original Iggy Pop version, have you? It's fantastic. It's a little different, but it's Iggy Pop. So it's in an Iggy Pop sort of way, Mm -hmm. but very, very interesting as well. Ah. But the video is interesting. Yeah, I thought about that whole racial element when I watched it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also like the idea that it transitions from color stock footage and it goes into this black and white section of it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also this homage going on to different classical films. Oh yeah. When you look at the the final segment where David Bowie is there on the beach with with the China girl and they're kissing and the ways of, you know, there's that. That's very from here to eternity. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That's it. You know, that was so racy. They were naked rolling around, making out on the beach. And it was so steamy that several countries banned the video. But mm-hmm. the the woman in the video, Ching, she said, this was like the least sexy thing ever. We got up at three in the morning to shoot that, to catch the sunrise. And it's the least sexy I've ever been in my entire life. So <laughs> it looks sexy on film, but in reality, nope, not so much. Yeah, it's, it's a great song, China Girl. And that song never gets old. No, um, it's so good. It peaked at number 10 on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. It beat out Michael Jackson's Thriller for Best Male Video at the first MTV Video Music Awards in 1984. Mm, very good. Very good. And also you get the another great Stevie Ray Vaughan solo. Oh, yeah. Things went kind of bad between Stevie Ray Vaughan and David Bowie. We'll talk about that when we get to the Let's Dance video. But let's go there. The song. I mean, the song is fantastic. But the video actually was a huge social commentary. They wanted to shine a light on the mistreatment and gaping economic divide that existed between the indigenous Aboriginal Australians by the white Australian capitalists. So David Mallet, the one that directed the China Girl video, he told Rolling Stone, it was very much David's idea and concept It was his idea to shoot in Australia, which in those days was a bold thing for a music video. I don't think any of us had any idea how important it was to do and what the reaction would be. And there was a Rolling Stone article that said in 1983, memories of the stolen generation, which was a term used to describe Aboriginal children taken by the government and placed in white families, were still fresh in many people's minds. Bowie inserted numerous direct references to the stolen generation in the video. A young girl scrubbing the street refers to Aboriginal children that were trained as domestic servants before being sent to white homes. Hmm. Rolling Stone said, like at the time, it was really rare to see Aboriginal people portrayed in a positive light in Australia, much less the rest of the world. 
Bowie shifting his position from a reclusive superstar to a responsibility-laden artist wanted to change that. He actually brought in Aboriginal people that he found at dance and theater schools to be in the video. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, definitely this commentary Mm -hmm. on the plight of Indigenous people. And you can put it definitely in the context of what was happening in Australia, but you can also put it here in America too. And, and when I watch the video, you know, there's definitely that narrative of, you know, you have this indigenous couple there who have these either ideas or have this um, vision of moving from their humble villages. They come into a bigger metropolis mm-hmm. city, you know, with more opportunities they start dining they start looking and collecting artwork there's commercialism i sensed like there was some temptation involved like even when you saw the aboriginal woman when she first sees the red shoes the red pumps right puts them on and dances but then later in the video they reject the shoes right exactly so when i watch the video and when i hear the song At the end, my impression is, you know, that's all just a false reality. It's just a dream. You know, it's it's a very interesting video. Now that you brought it, Mm -hmm. now that we talked about it in this light, I will have to go back and watch it again and think about it and think of all these elements. Yeah, it's definitely a complex social commentary on Indigenous people. It is. I mean, you see the young indigenous woman scrubbing in the middle of the street while Mm -hmm. the Aboriginal man is pulling this heavy machine through like a, a busy street, right? He's pulling this machine with ropes on his back. And so these two people are laboring while the rest of like capital society is driving by them, just passing them by. Right. The thing that pissed Stevie Ray Vaughn off was in the the Stevie Ray solo, we see David Bowie out there outside wearing these, you know, white gloves, basically miming the guitar solo, like he's playing Mm -hmm. it. And Stevie Ray Vaughn's like, um, Mm -hmm. dude, that's my solo. Like, what are you even doing? You're trying to pass this off as though it's your own. And God bless Stevie Ray Vaughn and God bless David Bowie. I love them both independently, but I can understand why that would upset Stevie Ray. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the complexities of the video back in 1983, when it was on wide rotation on MTV, I, I would have never got that. I don't know that a lot of people did. Right. But if it inspired people to learn more about it and to question it, like, what am I actually watching? Who are these people? Where did they film right. this? What is this about? I think that it was really amazing that he used his superstardom to try to you know, shine a light on this social injustice. It definitely opens up a whole new dialogue on on the topic. I love that the video is trying to say something. I don't know that that was the inspiration behind writing the song to begin with, because it almost seems like the video doesn't really match the song. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Was was David Bowie thinking about that as he wrote the song? I and don't know. If you listen to the song and the tone of the song and the feeling of the song, wouldn't it really you wouldn't really think, oh, you know, he was thinking about the plight of. Australian Indigenous Aboriginal people. Right. It's interesting. The song hit number one on the US charts. Mm -hmm. The Let's Dance album was a huge commercial success. The Serious Moonlight Tour was the biggest tour of 1983. And the album was nominated for a Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 84, but it lost to Michael Jackson's Thriller, which I mean. Well, yeah, it's hard to live up to that one. This album, though, it went on to be the best-selling album of Bowie's career. Right. And, you know, I I watched an interview with Bowie and Charlie Rose the other day, and Bowie was talking about it. And, you know, he was saying that this record was such a hindrance to him because, you know, before Let's Dance, throughout the 70s, he kind of built up this kind of cult audience yep but you know with this whole record it just broadened his horizon and people just responded all over the world and it just put david bowie in this another level 
of stardom. You know, as an artist, you have that big, huge commercial breakthrough. You make this great, wonderful music that appealed to the masses. You know, as an artist, what do you do next? Do, do you start thinking about making more records like this? Or do, as an artist like Bowie, go back and say, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to make music that's personal and for me. Exactly. And the fact that it was so mainstream, he said at the time, Let's Dance was not mainstream. It was virtually a new kind of hybrid using blues rock guitar against a dance format. So there wasn't really anything that sounded quite like it at the time. So it seems commercial in hindsight because it sold so many copies. It was great in its way, but it put me in a real corner in that it fucked with my integrity. It was a good record, but it was only meant to be a one-off project. I had every intention of continuing to do some unusual material after that, but the success of that record really forced me in a way to continue that beast. It was my own doing, of course, but I felt after a few years that I had gotten stuck and he referred to this period in his career as his Phil Collins years. And that is not Mm -hmm. to be a compliment. Those are my Phil Collins years. Like, uh, uh, uh. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. um, After let's dance, you know, he did um, tonight and then he did never let me down, you know, and he said during that period of time in his life, he felt that he struggled as an artist to make something that was relevant. Isn't that incredible to consider? Because it wasn't even like Let's Dance was his debut album and it exploded. And how do you follow from that? Right? Like you're almost guaranteed a sophomore slump. He was so well established in his career. He had so much more he still wanted to do, but now you're essentially pigeonholed by this massive audience that expects this kind of thing from you going forward. And he's like, wait a minute, this was just something I was doing. This isn't me forever. This isn't my entire identity wrapped up in this record that you expect moving forward. I think that's hard for a lot of artists because they're often not given permission to evolve. I'm sure there were diehard Bowie fans from the seventies that were like, what the fuck is this album? I don't want this from my artist. I expect more experimental type music. Mm -hmm. This is so poppy. This is so... I don't want to say vanilla, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not what we expect from Bowie. What is this? So it probably angered some of those people. And then the new fans are like, what are you doing? Wanting to go back to these experimental type roots. I don't, I I don't like that. I like the Bowie that I know and love from 1983. That is so true. Um, Especially if you look at the records, Low and Heroes, those are very avant-garde records. I love Heroes. They're very challenging. And then- you know, he went and did Lodger, which is another challenging record. Very arty, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Not mainstream, not commercial. You got Scary Monsters where he brought back the character of Major Tom. And now he goes into this. And I think, like, in a sort of way, when I look at the record, you know, when I pick it up, I look at the cover of the record. And the cover is <laughs> so, it's kind of odd. It's a little hokey. <laughs> yeah, but... You know, you got David Bowie there, you know, he's got his curly bleach blonde, uh-huh. you know, couple of hair and he's there in the boxing yes. you know, motif. And I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? But okay. Yes. What is Bowie trying to say? And what I get out of it and what I think about is, you know, Bowie is entering another decade. He's entering into another generation of music lovers. And he's venturing unknown territory. He's 35. So do you think, how am I going to be relevant in this new period of pop culture history? Mm-hmm. You know, how am I going to make a mark? I'm, I'm like a boxer, a contender, you know, how am oh. I going to do it? That's what I kind of get out of the record cover. And it also could be very danceable. You know, it makes you want to move, makes you want to groove, you know, makes you want to move your feet back and forth, right? Bob your head. Yeah. If you look at the world of boxing, boxers, they always have this dance thing. They're always moving in the ring, you know, and I think that's all there in the music and in the sound and in the wonderful production of the record. Yeah. 
again, you know, throughout Bowie's career, he worked with a lot of great musicians. Here he worked with Niles Rogers. He worked with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, he'd worked with Brian Eno, Luther Vandross, John Lennon. We go back to the Ziggy Stardust period, the great guitarist Mark Boland. And here he continues that collaboration, that effort of working with solid quality musicians. Right. And you definitely hear it in the music and in the production of the record. 100%. I think it's a solid record for Bowie. It's my favorite. And in his life, David Bowie was a great many things. He was a husband and a father, a musician, a songwriter, painter, an artist, an art collector. He was a philanthropist, an actor, a space oddity, and now a shooting black star. On January 10th, 2016, David Bowie died of liver cancer in his New York apartment. And yeah. During his lifetime, he sold over 100 million records worldwide. And there's this really cool thing online. There's a Bowie gig memory map. I'll put the link in the show notes for anyone that has had the opportunity to see David Bowie live. They can select the show they saw him at, and they can write about their memories from the concert. And so you can go and you can read everyone's memories of his entire career all over the world, people's personal experiences at his shows. I just think that's such a beautiful way to pay tribute to him. Have you ever had the chance to see David Bowie perform? No, I, I've never, I've never seen David Bowie perform. And I think in my life, I've seen pretty much every band I wanted to see mm -hmm. with the exception of David Bowie and R.E.M. And, you know, when it comes to music, you know, if I have any regrets, it's not going out, taking the opportunity and seeing those artists live. But Bowie, when I started collecting music and when I started learning about Bowie and I started reading about Bowie, I started looking at his interviews. And when I listen to a lot of my favorite bands today, Interpol, Moby, Morrissey, Trent Reznor, and some of the young rockers today, like Ty Siegel, DOCs. When you listen to their music, when you read about them, and, and when you listen to their interviews and they talk about, you know, who inspired you? What got you on the path to music? David Bowie is always in that conversation. As a visual artist, I have my favorite artists that I feel have made major impact in popular culture, in the history of art, in the way we look at things, the way we respond and react in our output. You know, my four favorite artists, Pablo Picasso, you know, and then Andy Warhol, mm. rounding out the later half of the 20th century going to the 21st is David Lynch. I mentioned before, I'm a big film person. And also, of course, David Bowie is part of that too. All these artists, not only were they really well endowed into the medium, into the work that they did, but they were very diverse artists at, in their own right. You know, not only did they practice the medium in which they excelled at, but they did other things too outside of that. Right. And to me, a good visual artist is one who not only does one thing, but has the ability to do other things mm -hmm. and excel in those things as well. And I think David Bowie is definitely in that class of very rare artists like that. Oh, I agree. And the innovation of each of those artists that you mentioned it's just integral to who they are is innovation. Mm -hmm. They just see the world differently. In a different light. They do. We are so lucky to find these artists and we make the connection. You know, we get the inspiration through their body of work. Yeah. And that will never fade away. The music will always be there. You know, hopefully people have 
same conversations like you and I are having. And they'll be inspired in the same ways that I've been inspired by artists like David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of your art, Rowan, let's shift focus to you. I mentioned at the top of the pod, you're a visual artist and you work in the mediums of clay, illustrations, and mixed media. Your work is rooted in your Native American heritage. I went on your website, twotribespottery.com, and I learned that you descend from the Pueblo of Isleta on your mother's side. And on your father's side, you're Navajo. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the creative influence your family and your cultural heritage has had on your art? So, you know, when we talk about indigenous people of the Southwest, on my mom's side, I am from the Pueblo of Isleta. Our reservation is located about 12 miles south of Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. in the lush Rio Grande Valley. Mm-hmm. On my dad's side, I am Navajo. Our people are considered the Diné or the people. Uh, The Navajo people have the largest Indian reservation in North America. The Pueblo people of the Southwest, our roots, our ancestors, we believe we are the ancestral people of the Anasazi people, which means the ancient ones. Mm. The height of Anasazi civilization was around 800, 1200 AD. During that period, the Anasazi people started experimenting with the resources and the elements that Mother Earth provided. And, you know, they started experimenting with the clay of the earth, water, mm-hmm. um, vegetation, fire, and air. And through the course of time and through the course of experimentation, They were able to start building and start cultivating and start developing pottery ware that served many different functions within their society. Those traditions flowed down and were continued with the Pueblo people of the Southwest. All these people continued that tradition of creating hand built, hand coiled, hand-painted pottery. That's so beautiful. And how did you begin learning how to do pottery? So my beginning into the clay arts, into the wonderful world of ceramics, into pottery, began with my grandmother on the Pueblo Vizleta Indian Reservation. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I was raised here in Southern California. During my childhood, my family would travel back and forth from Los Angeles or Long Beach, wherever we're living at. We would travel back to um, native country. There's a time where I would stay with my grandmother during the summer. And it was during this period during my childhood that my grandmother introduced me to clay. She brought natural handmade clay out of her shed, she would bring it to the kitchen table. And it was there where she introduced me into making what are called small pinch pot forms, Mm -hmm. little animal clay forms, Mm -hmm. using natural handmade clay. My exposure, the seed of working with my hands, working with my clay started right there. And during my adulthood, that's where I started developing and cultivating my work. If you think about ceramic artists today in conventional times, you know, most ceramic clay artists will create different shapes, different forms, different vessels using what is now the modern day wheel. Okay. If you think about the film Ghosts, right? <laughs> the infamous the infamous scene with Patrick Swayze, yes. Demi Moore, right? Sexy so that's clay. the potter's yes. wheel. Mm-hmm. Yes. But my work is more traditional. Mm-hmm. So I use a method called hand building, hand coiling, and it's making pottery work without the use of a potter's wheel. It's incredible, Rowan. I mean, your work is so symmetrical. It's so beautiful. It looks like it was crafted from a wheel. I don't know how you do what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Not only is there the building of the forms, you know, 
the construction of the forms and trying to get him symmetrical, you know, in a very kind of simplistic method. But there is also this decorative element. Yes. So a lot of my pottery work has a lot of these hand painted surface decorative designs, patterns and motifs. And let me stop you right there because I can tell just because he's a modest artist, he's not going to tell you how absolutely beautiful and intricate his work is. Oh, they're okay. They're okay. Oh, stop. (laughs) It's literally astounding. He creates these incredible patterns and designs freehand. He paints them freehand. He doesn't use any stencils. He doesn't use any rulers. And you would never know that. Yes. So in all these designs and all these patterns are representations or they symbolize the natural world of what is out there in native country. Uh So a lot of these designs and patterns that I use are traditional Southwest Pueblo motifs and patterns. And again, they represent whatever in the natural world out there that Mother Earth has created and given us. And that translates even to your color palette, correct? Yes, even in the colors that I use. I I use four basic colors throughout my body of work, you'll see. I use a lot of reds, terracottas, which represents the clay of the earth, the fire of the earth. When I'm using greens in my work, I'm thinking about the trees, the vegetation, the green of the earth. When I'm using blue, I'm thinking about water, the oceans, the lakes, the rain. So I kind of consider myself a Native American artist that has one foot in the traditional world and also one foot in the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at my body of work, you know, there are definitely traditional elements and a feel to it but I put other things into it that crosses over cultures and almost gets into a more a contemporary space and arena. Right. And I see that sort of in the mixed media work also. Yes. Yes. So, you know, from the pottery work, you know, there is this crossover into design work on two dimensional surfaces Um, whether it be paper, whether it be uh, wood panels, for whatever I can find. So I do a lot of pen and ink designs as well. Beautiful. I like to focus on selling the original work because the idea is, and the vision is that what you obtain is unique. It's one of a kind. There's nothing like it in the world. I also like to work in mixed media. You know, I like to bring found objects into the clay work, whether it be metal objects, mm-hmm. nails, screws, or what have you, wire. That's all part of this whole creative process. I'm very inspired by Bowie. And I always think about when I go to a period of making work, sometimes I will kind of repeat maybe a little bit of what I do. But then I get to a period where well, I got to do something different, Right. And I think about what David Bowie said about visual artists, that visual artists, they shouldn't always continue doing the same thing. They need to challenge themselves and do something different out of the box. Mm -hmm. Music is a huge part of the creative process to me. Whenever I'm working, whenever I'm in my creative space, there's always music in the background. You know, the work that I do takes many hours, sometimes 10, 20, 30 plus hours on a single piece, piece. Mm -hmm. on a single piece Mm -hmm. over a period of weeks. Mm -hmm. And through that time, I'm always listening to music. I'm listening to the sounds that are coming out of the speaker. You know, I'm listening to the patterns, the rhythms, the melodies, the progressions. When I'm sitting here in my moment, I'm thinking about that. And it's kind of bringing in this fuel, this creative energy into my work. And I'd like to think that when I finish a piece, you know, all that 
you know, musical elements somehow is kind of mixed in there and it kind of manifests itself in the final product. What it sounds like your creative process is, is like, it's almost a sort of sacred space where it sounds like it's almost meditative what you're doing. And, and Mm -hmm. the output is just so beautiful. It's truly extraordinary. Rowan, I have a few of your pieces and they sit proudly in my office. They're a conversation piece. People ask about them. And I want to encourage the listeners to check out your work on two tribes, pottery.com. I'll put links to all of Rowan's stuff. So you could check him out. Yeah. I'm truly blown away by your talent, Rowan. I know you've won a million awards. I know you travel the country selling your beautiful work. What's next for you? One of the greatest opportunities that I've been given is to share and to teach what I know. So I've had the, the wonderful endeavors of working with the National Park System out of Ventura. I've done cultural affiliated programming presentations and workshop with Los Angeles County public system for many years. I teach pottery classes, clay classes here at my local nonprofit cultural center, which is called the Muckenthaler Cultural Center. You know, I'm part of this group called Neshkanukit. We are a collective loose group of Native American artists locally here in Los Angeles and Orange County. So people have given me these these wonderful opportunities of just sharing uh, my work and just teaching endeavors. And that's that's what I plan on pursuing in the future and continuing doing more work. And of course, collecting more music and listening to more music. Oh, well, Rowan, I love your work. I'm a huge fan. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask you some lightning round questions. This is a thing I'm doing in season three. This is like rapid fire. Okay, let's go on with some questions. Okay. Pearl Jam or Nirvana? Nirvana. Ooh, okay. Best fast food fries? Hmm. Oh my God, McDonald's. Oh my God, so <laughs> good, right? Favorite 90s fragrance? Fragrance? I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm not a big fragrance kind of, um, kind of guy, aftershave kind of guy, but I would have to think there was this fragrance I used to have in the 90s by Calvin Klein. Oh yes, CK1. The unisex fragrance, yeah. I think it was in the yeah. frosted bottle. It was clear. Yeah, and I think I think I used to have that. We all had that, Rowan. Calvin Klein. Yeah. Okay. Did you ever own a bucket hat? No, I never owned a bucket hat. <laughs> Should I have owned a bucket hat? Absolutely not. Okay. No, thank no you, you did right. right. You did right. Good answer. This is a Beverly Hills 90210 reference, if you're familiar. Brenda or Kelly? Which one is the brunette? Brenda. (laughs) So, yeah. Brenda. All right. I would choose Brenda. But by the way, I was a big Melrose Place fan. (gasps) Rowan. Oh, my God. I got to have you over on the Patreon where I cover iconic <laughs> tv you got to join me to break down a melrose place episode we have got to do yeah I, I remember watching melrose place a lot during I, more I than melrose place. yeah it was good fodder such good tv <laughs> quality television yes all right what was your first car um a cutlass supreme oh what year was it it was probably an 85, 86 GM Burgundy. Hot. That is fire. <laughs> it was the Chick Mobile. <laughs> Woo! Man, when I rolled on the campus with that car, oh, they're my like, goodness. I got to get to know that guy. That's right. I rolled down the windows and I said, Hey, baby, you want to <laughs> ride in my love machine? <laughs> Let's roll. Let's roll. <laughs> yep. Okay. Were you a latchkey kid? Yeah, I was a latchkey kid. Definitely. Okay. You know, came home, opened up the door, flipped on the TV, watched video one. Yeah. <laughs> waited for mom and dad to come home, ready the refrigerator. 
Well, speaking of raiding the refrigerator, then what was your after school snack of choice? Mm, you know, I don't really recollect probably the standard junk food, mm-hmm. Cheetos, potato chips, you know, all good candy, whatever, whatever was around the house. Yeah. You know. I hear you. Okay. What film traumatized you most as a kid? Um, Francis Ford Coppola's wartime epic apocalypse now. Oof. So have you ever read Heart of Darkness? I kind of read that book. Mm-hmm. didn't get all the way through it. Yeah. But Apocalypse Now, I saw that film when I was probably, I don't know, eight, seven or eight. Oh, God. It's so heavy. My dad was a big film person. He okay. loved going to the movies. And I remember as a kid, he took me to see that film You because know, wow. he wanted to see it. So he dragged me along with it and I'm sitting there watching that film. Like, what is this? Yeah. Very heavy film, but I can't tell you what an impact that that film has had on my life and how I go and select and watch the movies I watch and the type of cinema that I appreciate it. And even music can be all attributed to that experience of watching apocalypse now wow so like a switch just got flipped yes okay first concert flock of seagulls magic mountain okay magic what year was this 84 maybe 85 Hmm. i would say around that period of time i remember going with some friends went to magic mountain they used to have low concerts there um, they had a performance stage out there, and I remember seeing a flock of seagulls there. I was a huge fan of that band. That's cool. And then you went and rode some roller coasters. And then went and rode some roller coasters. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a perfect day. <laughs> yeah, good times. The best times. This last question is for me. What's your favorite Elton John song? Oh, I have Elton John records, but it, it's. It's been a very long, 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 super long time since I listened to Elton John. What? What's wrong with you, Rowan? It's either Tiny Dancer or Rocket Man. Good stuff. But now that you brought this up, Lori, yes, I will go out. I will pull out those Elton John records Please and give do, them a Rowan. spin this weekend. Do it for me. Do it yes, for our I friendship. Will. I feel like that's something that needs to happen. That way, if we ever have this conversation, I'll be in the know. Yes. And I want to see the beautiful pieces you create while listening to Elton John. Yes, you got it. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rowan. It was such a blast to catch up, talk about your amazing work. And of course, David Bowie. I mean, it just, it doesn't get better. It doesn't. Yeah. Thank you again so much, Lori, for having me on your show. I appreciate it. I appreciate this time that we spent together. Talking about, you know, one of our favorite artists, David Bowie. I know. And you guys, I'll link to all of Rowan's stuff in the show notes. Be sure to check him out and give him some love. Thank you for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We have a Patreon where we cover iconic TV. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. We're on the web. We're on the socials. And of course, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Peace out, everyone. Have a great day. Keep listening to that music.